Welcome to the Nursing Home Podcast, your go-to source for professional insights in the long-term care industry. Hear from leaders and experts as they share current and practical insights to help make the most of your day. I've been a long-term care financial specialist. What that means is I help people plan for the inevitable. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to think about getting old, but it's possible that someday we might need a little bit of care. Here's your host, nursing home administrator turned podcaster, Shmuel Septimus. The reason why we are coming live today um, is because many of us have heard the news that there are nursing homes, a uh, specific nursing home in Kirkland, Washington, where there has been already multiple deaths, um, which are being attributed to the coronavirus. Now, we've heard so much in the news about what is going on um, with the coronavirus. We've heard mostly in China, and we felt a little more comfortable that here in the United States, we would remain immune to the effects of the coronavirus and unfortunately it has infiltrated so decided that we can use this opportunity to discuss a little bit more in depth of what actually happened and again we're not a news media outlet and we're not here claiming to be professionals on exactly what occurred but more from a an industry perspective you know what actually happened in that facility and more importantly what about for other nursing homes throughout the country? So for people who are operating nursing homes or for others who perhaps are not operating nursing homes, but they have loved ones in nursing homes where they're concerned. They want to know, you know, what should what should we be, we be, if anything? So so thank you so much. Um, and again, we literally just met two minutes ago. <laughs> so That's I'm not right. even 100% how to welcome you to the show, but I'm going to try my best. So Dr. Sarfaz Sidhu, did I do that right? Correct. All right, I got it right. So thank you so much for taking a few minutes of your time. And I know that you're busy and you had to move things around uh, to be with us today. And if you don't mind just starting from the beginning of what really, you know, we know that in order to sell uh, eyeballs, in order for in order for news, we have to, you know, it, sometimes a virus or any other health scare can be blown out of proportion. So, how dangerous really is the coronavirus? Let's start from there for the average person, healthy person on the street, and then let's focus a little bit more on the recent events that happened in that nursing home. Well, um, coronavirus, as I think it's been in the news recently, it's called COVID nineteen. Um, it is much like influenza, except it's uncertain. We can vaccinate against influenza. We can prophylax and treat for influenza, depending on the onset of symptoms with Tamiflu, et cetera, which is routinely done in the skilled nursing setting. Right. Unfortunately, with the COVID-19, there are no prophylaxis and there is no treatment at this point in time. And obviously a vaccine would be one to two years away. Additionally, what has actually transpired with the uh, with this COVID-19 coronavirus is under testing initially, from what I understand from the news reports, had been uh, the test kits that were sent out by the CDC earlier on were defective, so testing didn't take place. So likely the prevalence, meaning how, how widespread it is, even in the United States right now, it's considered to be underreported. The vulnerability of, uh, or I should say, the the morbidity in medical terms, in terms of uh, hardship of having this illness, falls uh, disproportionately on the elderly. It's sparing from one to nine. Uh, 
after that, it's, um, it does affect folks and causes more distress than the normal influenza. But really, the, uh, the 70 plus population is really the population that's going to have a disproportionate amount of morbidity and mortality associated with this coronavirus. Got it. So let, let's just, thank you for that. I know that was definitely a very full overview of what the virus is and a little bit of the background, but tell us a little bit more. So the CDC sent out kits to whom and in order, and what were the purpose of those tests? I think it was to start testing. The symptoms of the coronavirus can be very similar to influenza or mm -hmm. any viral infection. It could be RSV. Sometimes from a clinical standpoint, you really don't know what somebody has. And the only way you can do it is by testing to see what type of virus it is. Uh, for example, in the case of influenza, uh, the routine practice in the skilled nursing setting is testing, prophylaxis, and treating. Okay. Uh, from what I understand, the CDC had sent out um, kits for testing for the COVID-19, but they were uh, not working properly or defective. This is from all from the news reports. And that kind of set, uh, set the whole process behind from figuring out who these positive folks were. So that's why... Unlike uh, in other places, the reporting until now in the United States has likely been underreported because there wasn't a me mechanism for testing it. Got it. So that means that there could have, there likely is a significant number of people, unfortunately, that have the coronavirus, have been walking around freely, so to speak, um, and perhaps infecting other people uh, because the, the we didn't really have a good testing method. And now we're seeing the effect in in a very vulnerable portion of you know of the community. Is that correct? Well, uh, very much. Uh, you know, influenza can be rapidly tested, and you can start treatment. You can start prophylaxis. Folks who get the coronavirus, who are not of uh, the elderly population that normally resides in a skilled nursing long term mm -hmm. care, they may not have much in terms of symptoms, but they are still able to spread. The disease process so that's why for the long period of time it was likely prevalent in the community but it just wasn't noticed mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i see so uh, a question that people are asking uh two questions here and again my job is to be the dumb guy on the street and you're going to be the professional here and help me out um i never heard of coronavirus before and i doubt many other people have is this something that's new don't have a vaccine for it yet. Is this a, a brand new strand of something else that we've never had before and that we don't, we don't properly uh, know how to deal with it? And B, is, is coronavirus more dangerous for this population more than the flu? Because every year there are people in nursing homes that die from the flu as well. Now, it's not, they're not actually dying only from the flu. Many of them were sick and they were compromised before that. And this might have been something that, you know, made things even more complicated. So I guess just for the first question, you know, is this a new thing? Relatively, yeah. Coronavirus is a family of viruses and it's common cold can be a coronavirus and so forth. And they're designated by the classification and the name. So there's many, many viruses that belong to the family of coronavirus, but they don't necessarily lead to the same morbidity mortality that coronavirus COVID-19 does. By that, I mean people don't get as sick or die from it. There are many folks out there that have a coronavirus, and the more specific thing to focus on is the COVID-19. That is the real name of the virus. There are other types of coronavirus like HKU4, et cetera, that don't really carry with 
them the lethality and you know of somebody getting so sick or dying from it. So the problem that you're going to see also with this process is um, the misnomer of the coronavirus, because there are many different types of coronaviruses. A lot of them do not lead to the same level of sickness and death as this one can. And those folks are going to be, to a certain extent, kind of trapped and not necessarily let into the facilities and so forth just because it's a coronavirus. Oh, I see. So not all coronaviruses are created equal. The COVID-19, no. COVID how do you say it? COVID, C-O-V-I-D hyphen 19. Oh, COVID-19 is the, so to speak, again, I'm oversimplifying it on purpose for everybody else, but the COVID-19 yeah, is the bad coronavirus. And then there are lots of other strands which really are not related at all. And don't they don't carry the same threat to the patient or other people. Or uh, to the community. Yep. Or, or to the community as the COVID-19. Mm -hmm. But they, because of the hype and the panic um which a lot of people which we're having because nobody wants this to spread no one wanted it to come here to begin with but certainly not further so they may be quarantined they may be not you know denied access to wherever they're trying to go be it a skilled nursing facility um or anywhere else um because they have a strand of the coronavirus even though they don't have the covid 19. correct wow Okay, well, say, again, uh, you know, for the on, in the bigger scheme of things, you know, I'm assuming the healthcare community is trying to be as careful as possible. Um, I don't know. I guess there's no reason for those people to be um, turned away. No, so for example, like I mentioned to you before, we started broadcasting that I, you know, I saw a conversation with other administrators where someone just said, "Oh, I got somebody who said they had coronavirus," and you know. Biggest denial I ever did. Now we're not really mm -hmm. supposed to be denying uh, for those types of reasons unless we cannot care for them. And I, I highly doubt. Again, this and even if you know, I don't know this particular case, but I highly doubt that every administrator or every decision maker who decides who can and cannot come into a nursing home um, understands to you know the the, the distinctions uh, that we're discussing right now. And but it's not even just that. You know, the higher ups in the company, nobody wants to be the next Kirkland. Right. That's of a, course. Of course. Life, life care of America was not happy that, you know, that they were on the front page news for something like this. So if you have a choice and you could say, I'm sorry, we don't have, well, the term that we like to use in the, in the industry is we don't have an appropriate available bed, which is another reason for saying we're not telling, we're not taking you and we're not telling you why. <laughs> That's pretty mm -hmm. much what it means. Um, so we'd rather do that and risk, you know, getting dinged from, you know, the Department of Public Health or someone else for denying care for such a patient than risk of infecting everybody else. I mean, that's a decision that most people are gonna take. So now let's talk directly, let's speak directly to nursing home operators, clinicians, people are already in this space and, they're, and they are concerned, A, that they don't want the coronavirus or at least the bad one, right? The COVID-19, they don't want the COVID-19 coming into their facility. Um, they want to be able to detect if the virus ha is indeed there. And then if it is, they want to know what the next steps, you know, to take are if they indeed have a concern that a particular patient has COVID-19 uh, coronavirus. So, so how would you advise them uh, to deal with this in a practical way? So I, I think the approach is both macro and micro. I think, uh, from a macro standpoint, having engagement with your state's DHS, 
and task forces to learn as much as you can from that standpoint, along with uh, possible uh, resources from a close by academic center would be always helpful. Mm-hmm. And then I think there's going to be task force formation around that. The micro level, this is where it gets a little bit tricky. The presentation is very similar to regular influenza and other types of viral infections. The issue has become the ability to test as well. To test for this, you have to involve regulatory agencies and seek special testing at this point in time, and the number of test kits are small in number as well. Once the diagnosis is made, the issue is you have to have a isolation process. The One of the things that's different about uh, COVID-19 versus the influenza is you're looking at protecting to prevent transmission using uh you know, uh, uh, standard uh, contact precautions, uh, airborne, and even droplet. Uh, A Mm -hmm. lot of the nursing homes don't carry the N95 mask, which is used for droplet precautions. Um, It's normally in the hospitals uh, utilized for patients who are, you're trying to rule out tuberculosis in. And, you know, that's something most of the facilities don't carry that because there's no purpose for that. Um, So having a strong uh, infection control program uh, would be of great help. I think uh, it's not just uh, having this, uh, having the strong infection control, but also administering and overseeing it along with continuous education of your staff in terms of what you can do to prevent the spread of this. Okay. So thank you for that. So I'm, I'm going to put my uh, nursing home administrator hat back on. Now I'm wearing <laughs> it. Um, and I'm going to put myself in an administrator's uh, seat and my director of nurses and some of the other people we call an emergency meeting had, you know, we have maybe one or two residents who are concerned and they have symptoms which are flu like and coronavirus like. And we're concerned that we may we, we may be tomorrow's news and we really don't want that to happen for first of all, we don't like being in the news, but even more, we want to be able to protect our patients, our residents, and and our staff. So, but then, you know, the non-alarmists in the room are saying probably just a flu. We don't really know the distinction in the symptoms, and we don't have a way to test for it. So we can't put everybody in isolation. We don't, we lack the proper equipment, like you just mentioned. We don't have the, the droplet precaution material that we would need to implement that. And even if we do have a great infection control uh, policy in place, we may not be able to do everything that our policy says due to lack of equipment. So the last mm-hmm. thing we want to do is uh, share a level of a lack of control with the line staff because that will just make everybody go crazy, which the media is doing a fine job by themselves making that happen. So the, the, right. goal, the goal is certainly not to do that, but at the same time, we do need to make sure that we're being responsible and we're not brushing anything on, on, you know, under the rug, you know, and like you said, we should reach out to our state regulatory agencies. That's something that's difficult for operators to do because usually that spells trouble. When we self-report something, I mean, you know, this well enough that, you know, we know that that can end up with an inspection and yes, it's special times now. And right now, Hopefully, we with agencies would work together in an honest way because we're all in the same boat, and you know we want to make sure that this is contained. Um, so, how do I advise my director of nurses? Like, what what are my first steps here? 
your first steps are, you know, vigilance, hand hygiene to prevent contraction and spread. A that is your biggest situation. Mm-hmm. Education, education, education. Um, I think uh, uh, having your uh, director of nursing also take a look at the recommendations that have been put out by AMDA, put out by Post Acute and Long Term Care Association, and I think they're all relatively similar at this similar at this point, even including the CDC. You know, there's also the concept of taking a history. There's the hysteria that's following this virus. But no matter what, when you still have a patient uh, or a resident in your building that is displaying these types of symptoms, you got to mm-hmm. do a due diligence. If you're concerned about the COVID-19, you know, uh, interactions with family members, if they recently had traveled and so forth become important. Also, other folks that are, you know, to investigate that. But I think the, 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 the biggest basic process in this whole situation is going to be really, um, you know, testing them for the flu, testing them for RSV and ruling out processes. And if the person is still continuing to have symptoms, you got to get your physicians involved to be able to make that call to DHS or to CDC to get the testing equipment and isolating them in a room. That's, that's really what's going to happen. Well, I mean, I'm just looking here on LinkedIn Live and I'm seeing the the comments from a former colleague. Thank you, Mandy, for uh, chiming in. But, you know, if new referrals come up and you have someone who has a potential risk for COVID-19 and you know that you're struggling as is with all the challenges that we just mentioned, then obviously you don't you don't take that patient because you're struggling you disagree? I would love if you disagree. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm not disagreeing. In fact, I think uh, in that type of setting, if you have a new referral, the 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 thing is, if there's a suspicion of COVID nineteen, it's going to get tested. You know, in the in the short term acute care hospital, they would have to seek that out. I don't think that, uh, unlike influenza, you know, many times you don't test for it; you treat if the symptoms are there because the the time that you're spending doing it and the cost effectiveness aren't there all the time. Right. I think in that in pertaining to our other previous conversation, I think it's also if you have a patient that's coming to your building and the diagnosis on the discharge or somewhere on the, on the history is coronavirus, I think as a facility the best thing you can do is can you please tell us what kind of coronavirus was it? Was it a COVID-19 or was it many other strands that are out there that just caused the cough and cold and Nothing else really comes of it. Mm-hmm. Those other strands that are not COVID nineteen, those are not new, and those have been around since forever. Or are those also oh, yeah. They've okay. been around for a long time. So you're saying it's very possible that last time I thought I had a cold, I had a coronavirus, and it was just one very of the strands so. that wasn't COVID nineteen. Now, now something I, you know, we know that it began began somewhere in China, and we know that over there, the worst, and even when we find the presence of the COVID-19 virus. I'm just calling it that for those who are listening right now. And they're like, what in the world is COVID-19? We're we're all, we're finding someone who has traveled overseas. Now, how does it begin in the first place? Like someone just was born with it and and then it came. how, How does that even start? Well, the thought process is that it began in an open-air market in China, in the Wuhan province, or in the city of Wuhan area, where they actually had a close proximity of bats, and uh, I forgot another type of, uh, especially a, essentially a rodent, that were in close mm-hmm. contact 
that is where the viruses kind of commingled and you know that's where the changes took place in the virus and it actually ended up affecting humans and that's how it really began nobody was born with it it just <laughs> that's the strongest suspicion at this point in time of what took place and subsequently people handled it people became carriers some people become carriers and have very mild symptoms and they overcome them just like a cold right mm-hmm. whereas mm-hmm. others become very sick depending on their comorbidities you know the that's where we are in terms of talking about the vulnerable population in the skilled nursing there's a disproportionate uh, amount of morbidity mortality associated with people that are 70 and over and have other medical problems well i think that's a population we both serve right mm-hmm. and on top of that the other problems you end up having is there's the initial infection with the virus and then subsequently you can get secondary or super infections with the bacteria so here comes this whole concept of multiple things happening at the same time in one organism which is a human being that can have other issues such as kidneys that are uh, that are compromised the heart that's compromised lungs etc and in the older population it's much more lethal um 10 times as lethal as it is in normal mhm mhm Interesting. So are, are there any tests that they have for these other forms of the coronavirus to know that it's sure. so they could know? In other words, because we mentioned earlier that the CDC's original testing kits were defective. So are there are those the same kits that would decide or determine if if this patient has a different form of coronavirus? Uh, no, you can do PCRs. You can do many other studies to try to figure out what type of coronavirus it is. And there are many. Most of the time, you don't really need to. I think, and I'm speculating at this point in time, you know, in, in the current state that we live in, the potential of wanting to test more frequently just because the morbidity and mortality that this specific coronavirus, COVID-19, carries mm-hmm. is going to become significant. Mm-hmm. So, so people are concerned like asking like is there any way to test for the other ones because people might feel more um relaxed or you know if they if, even internally like I, I wouldn't say that an administrator would accept someone with a coronavirus diagnosis unless they know clearly it's not covid-19 um but the question is if there if there's a way uh to test for that but just moving on to another point here there are many viruses that people contract, unfortunately, every single year, every season has its own uh, viruses and sicknesses, which, which you know, they kind of revolve around the year. And this is something that's, that's new with this interesting type of beginning, like you explained earlier, um, and that open market in which city? Was Wuhan. Mulan? Wuhan. Wuhan, yep. Wuhan. Um, and which in itself is, is, is a strange... Uh, event, but the, you know the the effects are catastrophic. Now, how how much more dangerous? I don't know, that's not the right way to say it. <laughs> but is the is the mortality rate of of COVID nineteen coronavirus strand higher than a typical flu? Because yes, I mean, okay. And c- can you quantify that? From it, uh, from what I've uh, heard from news reports and uh, what I can gather from what I've seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's about two to three times higher the mortality rate. Wow! So, so that's significant. <laughs> significant. And the 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 real issues with this whole thing aren't 
So I would put it to you this way. Uh, you know, influenza is something we expect every year, correct? Mm-hmm. And every year the vaccine is made, the vaccine is, um, you know, changed to be able to cover more of the strand and so forth to reduce the propensity of somebody getting an infection, somebody having an infection for a long period of time and so forth. The problem with this is there's a couple issues. One is, A, we're at least 12 months plus off from having a vaccine. B, the production capacity of the vaccine is also going to be a challenge. And on top of that, in the meantime, we're trying to figure out what type of medications can be used to be um, that would be effective in this. The real other second problem with this is there's if this is relatively new enough, there is no clear indication whether you can get reinfected. Meaning. Now, meaning that, you know, a lot of times once you get the flu, you're done and you're likely not going to get the flu. In this situation, there's a there's a potential that people that may recover could get it again. And if they do, again, you're depending on the setting, whether you're a patient or a resident or you're a healthcare worker or you're an administrator, you may be involved in transmission of this virus. And there's a lot of, the reality is there's a lot of uncertainty because there's not a lot known about this, unlike the flu, which, you know, we have a lot of information on. Right. I mean, so this is not very reassuring yet, because basically what you're saying is even in a best case scenario, if someone actually contracts COVID-19 coronavirus um, and somehow gets a hold of a, a vaccine, which we're still 12 months away from getting, and is from those who are lucky enough to get from the limited supply, there's still no telling that there's still no telling that they wouldn't get it again. Or in a simpler way, if someone gets a COVID, if someone does get COVID-19 now, and it doesn't affect them, like you said. Not not everybody's going. Most people are, are going to brush it off, right? Mm-hmm. Most people are not going to die from it. Most people won't even be a serious event. But there will be a significant number of people that it will be um, a significant event. And if somehow somebody, let's say round one, there's no telling that they're done for it for the season or for the year, like it is, let's say, with the common flu. Is that? I think there. That's very true. The the reality is there's just not enough known about it. But what's clearly apparent is that it's very transmissible. Uh, some of the cases that you're now seeing that are taking place are what are called community cases, which means that these weren't folks that traveled to an area where this was prop- present or mm-hmm. came from China, etc. These were people that didn't even have contact with those types of folks who had been in China, etc., or an area where initially it was found. So you're seeing it in the community. And it's likely... Uh, underdiagnosed, meaning the prevalence just because of the testing kits and so forth. And but the transmiss the the fact that it's transmissible, that's of great concern to I think everybody. Got it. So let's put this in context, if if you don't mind. Sure. Um, and this is not the first virus that has you know that has grown to a global concern mm-hmm. over the last few decades. Mm-hmm. What has happened in the past? When, when this type of scare has happened and you had, you know, a lot of people were saying, oh my gosh, we're all, you know, some people were getting very extreme. And what, how, ha- how has the global health community managed um, these types of challenges? First of all, is that true? Has this happened in the past to other cases? And how have we managed then? So uh, the, the, I think there's a couple of distinctions. The flu is very prevalent. And it happens all the time. And mm-hmm. there's a vaccine, there's treatment choices and so forth, and we can see it. Uh, we almost expect it annually. 
Mm-hmm. When you take a look back recently, you know, you take a look at SARS in, in the early 2000s, you take a look at swine flu, then you take a look at MERS. The thing was, uh, SARS was much more deadly, but viruses that are deadly also don't have the tendency to be the tendency to spread that fast, right? Because those people become ill very fast and they do pass away the number of contacts that they have and so forth. The other issue is the transmittability, you know, is it through fluids? Is it through contact? Is it airborne? Is it through droplets and so forth? So when you take a look at SARS, SARS was, uh, had a smaller number of known cases, but a very high mortality rate. You take a look at swine flu, which is another viral infection. Swine flu was much more transmissible, but it didn't lead to as many, you know, the percentage of people that passed away from it was lower than it was for SARS. I know. I went to the doctor in -hmm. the swine flu season and they're like, you have the swine flu. And I started writing up a will and they're like, relax. Nothing's going to happen to you. Yeah. And then you take a look at MERS, which is, you know, some that came out of the Middle East. That Mm -hmm. also was very deadly, but you didn't have a lot of cases. Influenza, you have cases every year and you have about 1% or so people that pass away from it. In this situation, at the early times, you're seeing uh, the projections are three plus percentage of the people that contract the virus end up dying from it. So the problem in the, and for our audiences, that's all comers, right? When you're taking a look at patient populations over 65, immunocom- immunocompromised, and people that have, uh, you know, uh, that, that are vulnerable, it's that rate of mortality is way greater than 3% if they contract it. But now you have all of these vulnerable populations in one center that's clustered. So I'm not trying to create uh, hysteria from that standpoint, but I think mm-hmm. it's important for us to kind of understand these factors that are going to contribute to the spread of this virus. Um, and that's the big concern, really. It is the, the biggest concern from that standpoint. So it's interesting. So it seems like that that the this virus is spreading quicker because, the, you know, like you said, like compared to some of the other illnesses that you mentioned, the, the mortality rate is lower. Um, and therefore, there are more people who are walking around with it. Now, exactly. if, if person A, and, uh, please excuse my ignorance if this is a dumb question, but if person A has, you know, COVID-19 coronavirus, and it's not, they're from the 97% or whatever it is, and they're fine with it. To them, it's a common mm-hmm. cold or a mild flu or something like that. Does that define, is that because they have a certain strand within COVID-19, or is that just their personal body that can handle it in other words can they pass it on to somebody else who's dying uh they will be the people that are transmitting the disease process they it's not a separate strand of COVID 19 they have the same strand it's just that it doesn't get them that sick so that it's just like the flu there's some people that catch the flu and don't even notice it there are other people that develop fevers and require hospitalization so individuals are affected differently through this process uh, you know, one of the clearest examples that you can see in the COVID-19 is how sparing it is to children that are one through nine. And a lot of folks that live in the skilled nursing, long-term care type of situation, they have grandchildren that age. So they may not be, they may not even show infection signs and symptoms of much, but they're just carrying it. Wow. Yeah. Right. So that so that makes it, you know, even a greater concern. Again, mm-hmm. my, my goal of having this conversation is to calm people down, which 
which hopefully they have a better understanding of how this all works and steps that they can take. But because has COVID-19 and it doesn't affect them, they're walking. And so they really don't know that, that they have it and they have no reason to test for it. And they might be perfectly healthy. That's correct. Um, they're going to be going yeah. around and sharing that with everybody they know and love and even some people that they don't. And, and, those, and each person, you know, it depends on their personal health uh, situation. Well, first of all, you're going to test people that are sick, right? There, there's a subgroup of people that are not going to be sick enough that warrant testing, but they could have the virus. And that's where the issue comes in that whole process as well. You know, it's not a test that's readily available. It's not like influenza that we replicated it to a point and we expect it to happen seasonally in America this time of the year and everybody's ready for it to a large extent. That's where the uncertainty in a lot of this comes from. Exactly. So, you know, and, and I think that's uh, that's the underlying message is the, the, to learn more about it and, and, and to really focus on uh, what, in a building what you can do. Really educate, isolate, and, you know, really uh, focus on your infection control, um, come up with processes, implementation, and then, you know, audits. And then also, you know, take a look at folks that are going to develop secondary infections that are bacterial. And it, that's where the industry has to really continue to focus because the clustering of the vulnerable population is where you and I both work. Wow. Like I very well said, the clustering of the vulnerable pop population, that's exactly what it is. Uh, you know, Dr. Sarfaz Sidhu, thank you so much for the Nursing Home Podcast and even coming on LinkedIn Live. I'm looking at some of the comments and so we're on Facebook as well, streaming live, uh, where people really just want to hear that from a professional, what does this all really mean and what are the steps that we can take? And, you know, there's there are certain things, you know, we can only do what we can do. You know, I'm sure if anybody had a magic wand and they can make it disappear, there's a, I hope there's nobody in the right mind that wouldn't do that. But unfortunately, I left my wand at home today. And <laughs> I don't think that I don't think that that is the way it's going to happen. Now, actually, before we, we wrap up here, maybe you can help me with with that last point is. How to have like those other swine flu and the, the other illness, illnesses that you mentioned, how did those at the end? How did they disappear and what can we expect and hope uh, will happen to um, to COVID-19? COVID I think people generated an immunity to it and um, there are seasonal factors, usually the decrease in the rates in the summertime and the spring. Uh, there's normal distancing, especially living in the north like you do. You know, most people are in much more closer um, uh, areas during this time of the year in February and even April. And as people, as the summer comes, there's more interpersonal distance between people, there's less spread, and more people, as it goes through a community, the immunity continues to gain, and eventually it, it dissipates. Eventually it dissipates. Amazing. That's Wow, wow, wow. Okay, so we got to get through the next few weeks and manage this to the best of our ability, do everything that we can to ensure that it doesn't grow further, and that we manage the symptoms and you know like you said educate isolate follow the infection control policies you know taking it really seriously although we try to do that every day but it's it's even more important now um to make sure that we're following that any any final words before we let you go back to your schedule doctor i think uh you know there's a lot of hysteria about this 
but there has to be a method to continue to approach this problem in a systematic fashion. And the reality is we are all a part of this. Myself, you, the residents, the staff that work that, that work at facilities. And it's really about following the basics, hand washing, contact precautions, and going from there. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you so much, Doctor, for coming on the Nursing Home Podcast, doing this live stream to and really no heads up really at all. So I really, really appreciate it. Apologize for some of the technical difficulties we had in the beginning getting this started, but I appreciate your patience. Thank you so, so much. You've been tremendously helpful and really helped educate our listeners and viewers of what affecting some practical next steps to take. So thank you so much. Have a nice day. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Now that you've enjoyed this episode of the Nursing Home Podcast, I'd really appreciate if you'd rate this podcast and let everyone else know what an amazing resource this is for those wanting to learn anything and everything about the nursing home industry. So head on over to ratethispodcast.com slash nursing home. Again, ratethispodcast.com slash nursing home. Leave me a review and let the world know what an amazing show this truly is. Thank you so much for listening and make sure to stay tuned and subscribe so you don't miss any other episodes.